You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Allow me to pose a situation to you. What would you do if you found yourself abandoned on a deserted island? Practically speaking, what would be your first steps toward survival? I think most of us have, at the least, daydreamed idly about that situation, I know that when I'm out camping, there will inevitably be a moment when some absolutely minor problem has cropped up and I've found a solution that I'll sit back and think to myself, I could do it, I could live here, build a hut, catch fish, even a cabin given enough time. Some of us even have a plan in place for when society inevitably crumbles. There are doomsday preppers and bug-out bags and entire industries built around survivalism. And it is a good idea to have a plan in place. I mean, earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, these things happen, and it's only smart to be prepared. However, most of us will, happily, never be hopelessly lost in the wilderness or abandoned on a deserted island. If you did find yourself in that situation, what would you do? What steps would you take? Because I'm the sort of person to do this sort of thing, I have made a spear while out in the woods without using a knife. You can use fire and a rock to smooth a piece of wood into a hard, sharp, pointy stick. It's not that hard. Then I tried to spear some fish. I did that for maybe half an hour before I got bored and went to go make s'mores. I didn't catch any fish, but... If I got hungry enough, I think I could spear a fish or two. Before I retired to my nice waterproof tent to snuggle up in my padded, warm sleeping bag. So let me extend the parameters a bit. You are abandoned on a deserted island, and you have only the clothes that you were wearing, a good, sturdy knife, and a rifle. But you only have maybe twelve rounds for the rifle. You're on a subtropical island, thousands of miles from home, with no hope of rescue. You have no tent, no sleeping bag, no water, no chocolate, and no marshmallows, and no graham crackers. So let us assume that you're already proficient in the use of that rifle, proficient enough to hunt with it and keep it in good repair. And let's assume you're comfortable cleaning and dressing whatever animals you manage to kill, even if you manage to take down good-sized game with every shot, how long would 12 rounds feed you? Maybe a few months, if you were an excellent shot and knew how to preserve the meat to last a while? Assuming you could extend that by gathering fruits and roots to eat, maybe you could stretch it out to six months with excellent survival skills. But what would happen if those months turned into years? I'll expand the parameters further. Not only are you all alone on that island with no hope of escape or rescue, now you're out of bullets. That rifle is little more than a big club, and not a very good one at that. And 
then imagine that your island is in the territory of your greatest enemy, an enemy that has subjugated your people, committed genocide against many others who look just like you, and considers you personally to be a criminal of the worst sort, worth no more than a bullet to the head and to be left alone for the carrion eaters. And they know that you're there. That's becoming a fairly specific hypothetical situation. I think it's one that most of us would fail to survive. Even if we could manage to feed ourselves and find shelter, it's a rare individual that could last for years while being hunted, surviving only on what we could make or find. However, that was the situation of one young man named William in 1681. He was a pirate aboard La Trinidad under Captain Bartholomew Sharp on the Pacific Adventure. La Trinidad anchored at Isla Mas La Tierra, the second largest of the Juan Fernandez Islands, just off the coast of modern-day Chile. William went off to go hunting, carrying only his musket with a little bit of powder and shot and his knife. The rest of the pirates gathered together to hold an election for captain. That included William Dampier, John Cook, Basil Ringrose, Edward Davis, and Lionel Wafer. Sharp wasn't proving to be much of a captain. They weren't earning much money, so the men wanted someone else to lead them. They elected John Watling to the post. However, while they were wrapping up the proceedings, Spanish sail appeared on the horizon. The pirates fled to their boats and to La Trinidad, where they got under sail and fled as fast as the wind would carry them. Unfortunately, they had to leave William behind. William saw the ship sailing away and went down to the beach, hoping that there might be a boat or maybe to see if anyone was still ashore. Perhaps they had just left for a little while and were coming back. Then he spotted, and was spotted by, the Spanish on their ships. William fled to the island's interior to hide. The Spanish came ashore and sent a search party inland, but they failed to find him, and eventually they left. And then William was left all alone on the island, with not a single other human being in sight. This is episode 62, Not Quite a Haven. I've tried to put myself in his mind here. If I were in that situation, well, I think I would hold out hope that my companions were coming back for me. Once they escaped the Spanish, they would surely return and rescue me, right? Unfortunately, William had one major factor against him here. He wasn't English. He wasn't even white. He was a Mosquito Indian, a guide for the English. Now, England and the Mosquito were close allies, and the Buccaneers were especially close with the Mosquito. However, that didn't necessarily mean that the English held the Mosquito in the same level of companionship and camaraderie as they did toward each other. Still, there were other Mosquito on board the Trinidad. They must have argued for his rescue. Unfortunately for William... Captain Watling wouldn't last long, and Bartholomew Sharp was soon to be captain again. And if you want one solid piece of evidence that Sharp was a poor captain and an objectively bad person, take into account that he passed by Isla Mas La Tierra on his way to round Cape Horn, but he didn't bother to stop by and rescue William. Now some in his crew, especially the other Mosquito, would have argued for William to be rescued, but it appears that everyone that would have made that argument, including the Mosquito, voted to leave Sharp's command and sail north under John Cook. I wonder how long it took William to admit to himself that no one was coming. Perhaps he was the sort of person that hoped rescue would come, but assumed it wouldn't and worked with that in mind. Or perhaps he was the sort of person that worked in hope of a rescue. Perhaps he built bonfires for days, giving his companions a guiding light toward him. Personally, I think it was likely when his shot ran out, probably more like a few weeks than those hypothetical months. I think it was then that he accepted no one was coming back for him. Even if they were, now that he was out of shot, he would have to act as though he were on his own if he wanted to survive. So he built a shelter deep in the tree line. It was protected from storms and any prying Spanish eyes that might come by, but it gave him a view of the bay. 
He could see anyone that arrived on the island, be they English or Spanish, and he could act accordingly. Then he built a bucan, or a barbacoa, over which he could smoke the meat that he caught for preservation and cure their skins for later use. The island had herds of wild goats living upon it, of which he'd already killed several. He had their skins and used them as bedding and a cover for his shelter. Before long, he'd actually be wearing goat skins. Then he notched his knife to turn it into a saw. He used his gun flint and a little bit of the remaining powder to start a good fire. Now, we still had a flint and some powder left, but the goal would be to keep that fire going day and night as long as possible. Now, he used that fire to heat and soften the barrel of his musket, which he then struck or sawed into smaller pieces. Those pieces of iron he formed into all sorts of useful tools. He made a larger knife first to use in cleaning game, which took up most of the metal. But then he made hooks and harpoon heads. Now, to hear Dampier tell it, William and the Mosquito as a whole had learned metalworking from their English allies. Now, that's not exactly true, but it's not exactly untrue either. He describes the, quote, wild Indians as being essentially Stone Age people, making their tools out of chipped stone and wood. We know now that some Mesoamerican people had fully realized systems of casting and forging on a par with the height of European Bronze Age societies, but they worked mostly in copper and gold and silver. What they didn't have, at least in any large-scale operations, was ironworking. Most pre-Columbian people did primarily use stone tools, those in Central America and North America especially, For those societies that did have advanced casting and forging, well, after the arrival of the Spanish conquistadors, their European overlords didn't look too kindly on people building forges that could be used to make weapons. Still, William was able to make tools from his iron musket. With those harpoons, he was able to spear seals, and lots of them. Dampier writes, quote, Seals swarm as thick about this island as if they had no other place in the world to live in. For there is not a bay nor rock that one can get ashore on, but is full of them. End quote. And then he goes on to describe another strange animal. Quote, a large creature about twelve or fourteen foot long. The biggest part of his body is as big as a bull. It is shaped like a seal, but six times as big. The head is like a lion's head. It has a broad face with many long hairs growing about its lips like a cat. It has a great goggle eye the teeth three inches long, about the bigness of a man's thumb. In Captain Sharp's time, some of our men made dice with them. They have no hair on their bodies like the seal. They are of a dun color and are all extraordinarily fat. End quote. William Dampier is usually credited with, if not discovering this animal, giving it its name, the sea lion. But then William, the mosquito William, used the skins of both the seals and the sea lions to great effect. He covered his dwelling with sea lion hides to protect against the rain. He used seal hides to, well, he cut them into strips, which he used as strings and braided into rope. He used them as fishing line with his iron hooks to catch the snapper and grouper that lived just offshore. William was, in a lot of ways, very lucky. I mean, it's never lucky to be marooned, but he had the skills and the will necessary to survive. The island also was, if you are going to be marooned, a good place to be marooned. It had a huge natural bounty. There were goats and birds and turtles and fish and all manner of other edible animals. He lived as well as he was able, even building himself a relatively cozy home and able to stockpile food. His biggest problems would have been, well, first of all, the rains that would, during the winter at least, be cold and have buffeted the island. And then there were the not infrequent visits of the Spanish soldiers. The Spanish knew he was there and would occasionally come hunting him. They would bring dogs and would sometimes spend days in their search. Now, William eluded them time and time again, but they certainly found his hut and his bucan and destroyed them. 
but William brought all of his essential tools with him and was able to rebuild every time. I imagine that after the first raid, he built up a small store of food and skins necessary to rebuild. William lived like this for three years. Then, one morning, he looked out over the bay and saw sails. But they weren't Spanish sails this time, they were English. On 22 March 1684, the Bachelor's Delight under Captain John Cook sailed into the harbor at Isla Maslatiera. William Dampier, Edward Davis, Lionel Wafer, and most of the crew were English rovers that William already knew. Now there was another ship, the Nicholas, under Captain John Eaton, that William didn't know, but the English on board the Bachelor's Delight were rowing ashore. William ran down to the beach to greet them, and as the boats neared the shore, one of William's close friends from the Pacific Adventure, a mosquito man named Robin, jumped out and ran to greet William. Dampier writes, quote, When we landed, a mosquito Indian named Robin first leapt ashore and, running to his brother Mosquito Man, threw himself flat on his face at his feet, who, helping him up and embracing him, fell flat with his face on the ground at Robin's feet, and was by him taken up also. We stood with pleasure to behold the surprise and tenderness and solemnity of this interview, which was exceedingly affectionate on both sides. And when their ceremonies of civility were over, we also that stood gazing at them drew near, each of us embracing him we had found here, who was overjoyed to see so many of his old friends come hither, as he thought, purposely to fetch him. End quote. It's unclear if they did sail for the Juan Fernandez Islands to rescue William. Dampier seems to suggest it might not have been their goal, but everyone on board the Bachelor's Delight, or nearly everyone, knew that they had left William behind. At the least, they would have been happily surprised to find him alive. Now, they did have another reason to sail for Isla Mas La Tierra, and I should mention that the island has a different name today even in her native Spanish. They call her Robinson Crusoe Island. William wouldn't be the last castaway to survive there for years, nor would he be the last that William Dampier would rescue. But the pirates sailed for Juan Fernandez because they needed rest. Their crossing into the Pacific through frigid storms had left several of the men ill. Maybe half a dozen were sick enough to cause concern, including the captain, John Cook. Now, Cook had at least three men on board who knew a bit about medicine, and John Eaton had his own doctors. They all looked after the patients, and William, the mosquito William, had a store of medicinal herbs he'd gathered there on the island. He also had food, and a fair bit of it. He prepared goats and cabbages, with enough to feed both of the crews happily. The crews of the Bachelor's Delight and the Nicholas enjoyed their time on the island. They spent 16 days there, letting the sick men rest and recuperate. Now, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, or just a few days after, the pirates were on Robinson Crusoe Island on this day, 334 years ago. But by April 7, it was time to depart. The men who were ill were doing better, and Captain Eaton was eager to go capture some prizes. I wonder what William felt when he finally left his home of three years? Was there a moment where he looked back at his campsite and felt inexplicably a sense of melancholy? Or was there just an overwhelming feeling of relief that he would see his real home once again? When they left, the pirates sailed north for over a month at sea along the Andes, Dampier, who may have been better qualified than any other Englishman to make this claim, was of the opinion that this stretch of ocean on which he sailed right now is the only part of the entire Pacific Ocean that could correctly be called Pacific, what he called the Pacific Sea. He describes the beauty of large, even mountainously large, swells, but they never broke into waves. He described how, even at night, the skies were so clear that you could see endless, calm, moonlit ocean before them. How sailors on this patch of ocean could sail on without 
worry, or trouble. Farther north, the sea grew as rough as anywhere else in the world, but for now, along the coast of Chile, it was truly Pacific. But of course they were sailing north, and trouble was coming. On May 3rd, they spotted sails in the distance, and set a heading to intercept them. Captain Eaton was closer and came upon her first. He boarded and captured the crew when Bachelor's Delight caught up and came alongside. The ship was carrying lumber, two weeks out of Guayaquil. There were no valuables on board to speak of, and the Spanish captain informed the pirates that there would not be, not on his ship or on any Spanish ship they might find. The Spanish had word of the English pirates in the Pacific, or at least of Captain Eaton. This ship had received word only a few days past when she went ashore to collect water. The news of English corsairs had come out of Valdivia when another Englishman, Captain Swan, brought word of the English presence in the Pacific. The Viceroy at Lima had handed down orders once he learned of them. Every city, every port, and every town was to prepare for attack. If that town were too small to defend themselves, they were to leave and make for a city with a proper garrison. The people were to bring along with them all of their valuables, including the food and drink. Anything that could supply the pirates, they were to deny them. Any booty that the pirates might be after was to be properly guarded behind a stout wall and men atop it with guns. They were prepared to defend against any attack, even to withstand a siege if necessary. Also, no ships were allowed to carry gold or silver or jewels or any valuables. Even valuable cargo that the pirates might want was to be kept safe. The only ships allowed to sail without express permission were Coast Guard ships, which were currently being outfitted in large numbers to sail out and capture the pirates. The Spanish intended to deny the English food or drink or succor or plunder. Basically, the entire reason for them being here... They were denied. This was a hard bit of news. When they learned, the pirates sailed for the nearby Lobos de la Mar to digest this turn of events and to plan their next move. They brought their new prize, the lumber ship, with them, just in case they needed a Spanish vessel to sail in without notice. They had one big advantage here. Except for the crew of their newly taken prize, not a single Spaniard knew that the Bachelor's Delight and her nearly 100 pirates were in the Pacific. They were expecting the Nicholas and Captain Eaton, but not Cook and Dampier in that lot. The pirates knew that they could use the Nicholas as a decoy, a ship that would distract the Spanish, while the lumber ship could sail in, full of the crew of Bachelor's Delight, undetected. That might just work, especially if they intended to take one of the larger cities like Guayaquil or Truxillo or Volvidia. Once attempted, though, that would play their hand. The Spanish would know all about the other crew of pirates, and they would be back where they started. The pirates discussed their options late into the night. Now, the sick on board were being tended on the island, but finally everybody came to the conclusion that the best option to attack would be Truxillo. Come morning, however, they spotted three Spanish sail in the distance. Eaton took the Nicholas and put to sea immediately to chase them down. Now Captain Cook was still ill, so Dampier and Davis took Bachelor's Delight out. One of the three Spanish vessels separated from the others, and Davis headed right for her. Eaton kept on the other two. Davis and Dampier finally caught up with their quarry, but it wasn't tremendously difficult. She was slow-moving, riding low in the water. When she was captured, the crew surrendered, and the pirates looked to Eaton to see if he needed aid. Now he didn't. His two ships were both caught, and he was sailing back with one of them in tow. The two crews met and set about to explore their new prizes. The ship that was left behind was even heavier and slower than the others, so Eaton left it, but she was carrying flour. Now, the other two carried flour also, but the ship taken by Davis and Dampier, the largest vessel, had other treasure as well. There was marmalade in huge quantities, as well as a mule and some fowl on board. She was the flagship of this little expedition, and 
Her most valuable treasure was information. There was a letter on board, addressed to the governor at Panama. It informed the governor of the English presence in the Pacific, and it warned him to be vigilant. It also said that there were to be no other ships sent out carrying aid while the pirates were present in their waters. This was intended to last Panama for weeks, even months, should they be put under a siege, so the governor was warned to use it wisely. Now this was good news for the pirates. Panama would have no word of them, no warning of their presence, and she would be without foodstuffs to resist should she be put under siege. It was, this was a huge amount of food, enough to last a city like Panama for months. The buccaneers chose to hold on to it. They could always use food. There was a bit of unfortunate news in the manifest, though. This very ship, only a few days earlier, had carried upwards of 800,000 pieces of eight bound for Panama. Had Captain Charles Swan kept his mouth shut, it would have been carrying all that silver still and been ripe for the pirates to capture. So they decided to take their new prizes, all three of them, and return to Lobos del Mar. The pirates divided the cargo and crews among their five ships. The Bachelor's Delight and the Nicholas carried all the guns and enough men to take any prizes they might come across. They were still operational pirate vessels. The other three, the three flower ships, were crewed with just enough men to sail. But then they put the flour, the timber from the lumber ship, the marmalade, and all of the animals, they distributed them evenly throughout all the vessels. They left the lumber ship at anchor there at the island, though. They emptied her of anything useful and left her behind. The crew abandoned their plan to attack Truxillo, at least for now, and sailed north-northwest toward the Galapagos Islands. That's a small island chain far from the mainland, but large enough to support them for a time. When they arrived, everyone disembarked. Now, most of the crewmates had recovered fully, but Captain Cook was still quite ill. They erected a tent for him, first thing, and his quartermaster, Edward Davis, took the captain's role in the discussions that followed. Now, if this were a biography of William Dampier, I would spend an entire episode talking about his time on the Galapagos. Dampier spent his weeks there recording all of the flora and fauna he found in great detail, he talked about penguins and tortoise and turtles and iguana and all manner of strange beasts. His work there was groundbreaking. It was so important, in fact, that it became the major influence in Charles Darwin's choice to sail there almost 200 years later. His wasn't the only work written about the Galapagos on this island. Ambrose Crowley, the pilot, also wrote extensively on them. He mapped and charted them, and he described the island's geography in great detail, as well as coming to many incorrect conclusions about their geology. The Galapagos actually comprised the majority of Crowley's work. However, this is not a biography of William Dampier or a show about the Galapagos. It's a show about pirates, and not a lot of piracy took place there. However, if you are interested, I suggest you look into this time. There's a lot of fascinating early scientific research going on. Mostly, though, the pirates there explored and hunted. One thing that Dampier does note was that they hunted and captured dozens of turtles, even potentially hundreds. There were so many on the island that it was, it was hard not to capture them. Rather than kill the lot of them, though, they brought most of the turtles on board alive, and then they stacked them upside down atop one another in huge numbers. That sounds terrible, like the worst kind of torment. However, for the pirates, the people on board, it meant that they would have a ready supply of fresh meat and, perhaps even more importantly, good fat in which to cook all of that flour that they had just captured. So, let's recap for a moment. They had hundreds of turtles which could be used for meat and fat. They had brought goats on board at Isla Mas La Tierra, and then they had a mule, and they had marmalade. And then they had enough flour to last a good-sized city for weeks, at the very least. They had 
fruits and vegetables they had collected at the Galapagos, and, well, they had a lot of food. Enough to last the pirates for months, and keep them well fed during that time, no rationing out. However, after their several weeks ashore, it was time to set sail once again. Captain Eaton had decided that it would be better to sail north, rather than attempt any raiding on the coast of Peru. Now, Captain Cook was doing a lot better. He was stronger than he had been, and he elected to sail along with Captain Eaton. They made for the southern coast of modern-day Costa Rica. At the time, it was still part of the Viceroyalty of Nueva España, colloquially called Mexico. Within sight of the coast, at a place called Cabo Blanco, Captain John Cook suddenly and unexpectedly died. Dampier writes, quote, He seemed that morning to be as likely to live as he had been some weeks before. But it is usual, with sick men coming from the sea, where they have nothing but the sea air, to die off as soon as ever they come within the view of the land. End quote. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. They made landfall four hours later, and two dozen men went ashore to give him a proper Christian burial. Twelve were sent to dig his grave, and twelve more to stand guard. They were in unfamiliar enemy territory, and none of them knew how populous the area might be. As it happened, that party was spotted by the locals. While Captain Cook was being interred, the twelve guards spotted three men watching them from a rise. Now the guards ran after the three, and one of them got away, but the other two, they came near near enough that they stopped and turned. They were Indians, though no one knew, even the Mosquito didn't know, who they were. The pirates asked them a few questions in Spanish, and the Indians replied, this was Spanish land and they were Spanish subjects. The Indians had a few questions of their own, though. They wanted to know who the pirates were and where they'd come from. They wanted to know why they were there. The pirates answered these questions honestly, they were a few weeks out of Peru, near Lima, and headed north and west to Rialejo. Their captain had just died, and they came ashore to bury him. The Indians became much more comfortable, even bold enough to approach the pirates. Ah, Peru, they knew Peru, and they'd heard of the great Spanish city of Lima. Any men from Lima must be good Catholic Spaniards. Dampier writes, quote, our men did not stick to soothe them up with as many falsehoods, purposely to draw them into their clutches. Our men often laughed at their temerity, and asked them if they never saw any Spaniards before. They told them that they themselves were Spaniards, and that they lived among Spaniards. End quote. The two Indians confessed that they had never actually met any Spaniards personally. In fact, none had ever even come to their village before. They spoke Spanish, and they knew of Spain and the great cities, but those were for higher-ups. It would be a great honor, though, to host these Spaniards for the evening. So the pirates took them up on the offer and brought their men ashore to be led inland to their village. That night the inhabitants all gathered together to feast and to celebrate their visitors. They traded first, and then the locals danced. If this were a movie... This would be the scene, similar to so many in so many westerns, where a band of 
bedraggled white men stagger into an Indian village. Their leader had just been killed and morale is low, but then the medicine man gives them a brew of some strange magical concoction and orders only one sip each. Now, that didn't happen to the pirates. There was no strange psychedelic brew that Dampier records at least, but this is the movie. And then, wrapped in comfortable blankets and warmed by the hospitality they received, lit only by fire, the Indians begin to dance. And that actually did happen. Dampier writes of their dance at length, of their grace and their poise, and then he mentions a statue of the Virgin Mary that struck him. It was a Catholic symbol, but carved in wood, and it had Indian features. It was wearing Indian dress, and it was actually painted like one of their women. This is the scene where our heroes are at their lowest, and a tribe of mystical, salt-of-the-earth natives shows them compassion and love and revitalizes them for the fight ahead of them. Of course, the pirates were there on false pretenses. The fight ahead of them was not by any means a noble struggle, but anyone who watches movies knows exactly what kind of scene I'm talking about here. Now, Dampier was quite impressed by the Indians he met, and his record shows that. Now, there's a lot of noble savage type language here, but he does say he feels that these Indians are, quote, more melancholy than other Indians that are free, end quote, and that their joy was, quote, rather forced than real, end quote. For all of their own crimes against most notably the African slaves, the English were always quick to note how terribly the Indians under Spanish rule were treated. Now, these Indians may not have recognized them, but they actually had met Englishmen before, at least members of their tribe. Eighteen years earlier, a buccaneer captain named Henry Morgan had taken the city of Grenada on nearby Lake Nicaragua and traded with the local indigenous people there. These were almost certainly the same tribe as the Indians that Dampier met. Their stay here lasted for some time. The pirates herded and hunted cattle, helping the Indians, but also in return they received a fair amount of that cattle. There were a couple of close encounters, though. On one occasion, Dampier was waiting for twelve of his companions to return, but they didn't return when they were supposed to, so he and eleven others went out to find them. They were found offshore on an outcropping of rocks. Actually, when Dampier found them, the rocks were well underwater, and the men were up to their waists in seawater. The men had been surprised by a group of, and this is according to the story of the men stuck out in the ocean, fifty or sixty mounted Spanish soldiers. The horsemen spotted them and chased them, and then at low tide the pirates ran out to the rocks, all the while dodging Spanish musket balls. They were forced, though, to wait out there, with the Spanish riding up and down the shoreline. When the Spanish finally did leave, the tide had come in. Personally, I think those men made the whole story up. I think it's likely that they thought they saw a piece of gold or a mermaid out on those rocks and somehow found themselves out there, and when they realized how foolish they had been, they told Dampier, yeah, there were 50, no 60 mounted Spanish soldiers shooting us, but who's to say? Now, it was suggested that the men abandon their ships and take canoes north across modern-day Nicaragua. They knew from Henry Morgan's expedition there that there was a way through. They could return home, and many of the men thought that now would be a good time to do so when they were so close to the West Indies. However, others in the party reminded them that if they did take canoes north, they would pass through Cabo Gracias a Dios, and that was the place where, according to Alexander Exquimelin, Francois Lolonet and his men were captured by savage Indians, tortured, mutilated, and finally eaten. This was 1684. It's entirely possible that Dampier had a copy of the, well, probably not the English edition, but it's possible he had Spanish or French or Dutch, the edition of Buccaneers of America. Now, there were rumors 
of a major pirate attack to the north. That's largely why so many men wanted to sail north. Somebody was having great success up there. However, those rumors came from the Indians. They didn't know much more about the attack. Still, though, that intrigued the English pirates. They thought maybe they could meet up and finally find some riches. But they decided against it. Most of their time with that tribe on the coast of Costa Rica was peaceful. The crew of the Bachelor's Delight held an election, and Edward Davis was made their new captain. Now both crews careened their vessels, and finally, when that was done, they prepared to set sail. They had decided to return east, toward Peru, now that the alarm had hopefully died down. A few days into their voyage, however, Captain Eaton and his crew elected to leave Captain Davis. Davis and his men believed that they deserved a greater share of any booty they might take. They believed this due to their greater experience. Now, they were all seasoned buccaneers, men of the West Indies. Eaton and his crew were fresh-faced lads out of London. Still, though, Dampier argued, and I agree, equal share for equal work. Dampier argued in favor of giving them equal shares and staying together. He wanted to split the booty equally, but the rest of his crew voted to separate. This upset Dampier. He knew that they were in a much weaker tactical position without the Nicholas. But then only a few days later, a series of violent tornadoes hit them at sea, and the two ships encountered each other once again on a small island where they both gathered to take on water. Once again, Dampier attempted to mediate between Davis and Eaton, but once again, no good came of it. Eaton and the Nicholas left them again, and here Captain Eaton leaves our story. He struck out west across the Pacific and would return to England by 1686, where he would fade into obscurity. Now, Bachelor's Delight headed for Isla Plata, what the English called Drake's Island. They undertook a few raids from there, but little came of them. There were too few men now without Eaton beside them, and most of the nearby ports that might actually hold any valuables were too well defended. The best prize they found was a small hall of old wine, and that was in an empty village, which the pirates decided in frustration to burn to the ground. But when they returned to Isla Plata, they found a pair of sails waiting for them. Not Spanish sails, an English vessel. When they investigated, the pirates found that it was the Signet, under Captain Charles Swan, and another bark under a man named Captain Peter Harris. Now, Swan was the very captain that had caused them so much trouble and cost them a prize worth 800,000 pesos. They had good reason to be angry with Captain Swan, but that wasn't how matters turned out. Swan related to them a story of woe, a story in which he'd been denied trade and fired upon and threatened with arrest time and time again, until finally his men convinced him, against his wishes, to turn to piracy. And that's when he met up with Peter Harris. Now, next time we're going to go into detail of their story, what brought the Signet and Harris here, but what's important for right now is this. This Peter Harris is actually Peter Harris the Younger. He was the nephew of the same Peter Harris the Elder who served briefly as a captain in the original Pacific Adventure. He was a hero of the battle before Panama. Davis and Dampier and Wafer and all the rest, they all knew him. They'd met him before, as did Basil Ringrose, who, remember, was on board the Signet. This rendezvous here at Drake's Island, well, it brought even more of their original crew together. It was quickly becoming sort of a reunion in the Pacific of men that had sailed on the Pacific in 1681. They had more than doubled their numbers, too. Quickly, they realized that well, if Captain Eaton were there, if he had not left, they would have been strong enough to take on any port in the Pacific short of Lima itself. So they wrote up letters to Captain Eaton. Those letters urged him to return. They told him to sail for Drake's Island, where they were all waiting. 
Then they picked out crews to sail two barks out to hunt Eaton down and to bring him back to them. But Captain Swan and Harris had something even more interesting that they brought to the table. What they'd been up to these past few weeks. Without giving too much away for next time, the most important bit was that they sacked and captured Santa Maria in the Darien region near the Gulf of San Miguel. You might remember that from the original Pacific Adventure. Harris, though, Peter Harris pulled out a lump of gold, quote, as big as a hen's egg, end quote. He'd taken that from Santa Maria. Now, Santa Maria was a fort built to guard the richest gold mines in the New World, according to Dampier. And this notion embedded itself in Dampier's mind. He began to hatch a plan. The plan wasn't realized yet, but it was coming. In the meantime, the pirates that were there on Isla Plata grew tired of waiting for Eaton. They'd spent a few weeks gathering coconuts and hunting turtle and growing bored. They wanted a prize. So they got together and discussed it and voted to attack the nearby town at Guayaquil. When they entered the bay, Dampier notes, quote, Near the bottom of the bay, there is a small island called Santa Clara. It appears like a dead man stretched out in a shroud. End quote. That's a bit of poetic license on Dampier's part, maybe, but the bay around Santa Clara was dangerous for ships, and it had claimed more than a few of them. Dampier even mentions rumors of a particularly rich shipwreck, a treasure galleon at the bottom of the bay. He says that the Spanish crown had long ago given up on reclaiming that wreck, and that even experienced Indian divers feared to go too close. According to him, there are swarms of exotic, venomous fish that would kill any man who came too close. And he writes of these dangerous fish in detail. He describes the malicious whiskers on these so-called catfish that sting and can kill a man in great enough numbers. He describes the fear that even the Indians have of them. And, to be fair, the catfish in the Bay of Guayaquil are venomous, and enough of them together could kill a human being. But from Santa Clara, in the Bay of Guayaquil, the pirates disembarked from their ships and continued in canoes. To reach the city of Guayaquil, they had to go upriver from the bay, and at the mouth of the river, just, just down from the mouth of the river, there was a small Indian village that Dampier calls Punta Arena. They took that village without a single shot being fired, and luckily managed to capture every inhabitant there. No one was going to be able to get away and raise the alarm. The pirates chose two men to act as guides for them, and then began to move on. But before they were able to row very far, they spotted a small merchantman sailing close to Punta Arena. Now that ship might have seen them. If it did, it would carry word back to Guayaquil, so they rowed out in their canoes and captured her. Now it was carrying cloth, nothing valuable, except they had some news. There would be three more ships coming this way, all of them laden with slaves, and that would finally be a rich haul for the pirates. So Davis ordered the mast of the cloth merchant cut down, and put a few of his men on board to guard the crew. They lay anchor there, near Punta Arena, but the pirates had orders not to fire the guns on board the cloth merchant under any circumstances. Then Davis and Dampier and Swan and Harris and all of their best men took their canoes to the mouth of the river that led to Guayaquil. They rowed up the river a small way when the tide allowed them to and waited in a small inlet hidden by trees and brush to catch three slave ships that were coming downriver. When the first of these ships appeared, they rowed out and caught her. She wasn't armed, and she surrendered immediately. The captain freely told all that he knew. He said that the other two ships were following him. Again, the crew of the slaver was put under guard, and the slaver was anchored just offshore, around a bend in the river, out of sight. Somehow, though, the other two slave vessels slipped by. Nobody noticed them. Davis and Swan and Harris, everybody that was busy taking the first ship, just didn't see them. Now, they were supposed to capture 
these slave vessels, but they sailed on by unnoticed. So when those two slave ships sailed into Guayaquil Bay, near Punta Arena, the pirates on board the cloth merchant, well, all they saw were two Spanish vessels sailing from the direction of Guayaquil, from the direction that their companions had sailed just that morning. So the pirates there on board the cloth merchant assumed that those two ships probably weren't any slave ships, but instead filled with Spanish soldiers and armed to the teeth. They believed that Dampier and Swan and all the rest had been captured, and that these men had come to finish the job to capture them. So, despite their orders, they fired on the two ships coming toward them. Now, the slave merchants stopped. They weren't expecting to get fired upon, and they surrendered. The pirates boarded them and realized their mistake. They captured their crews and put those ships at anchor as well. Here's the thing, though. The pirates in the canoes upriver, Davis and Dampier and all of them, they had no idea that the slave ships had passed them by unnoticed. All they heard were the sounds of heavy guns being fired in the distance, from the distance of their companions back in Guayaquil Bay. They assumed that the Coast Guard had come and captured their fellow pirates back at Punta Arena. So they waited. For an entire day, they hid in an inlet off the river, waiting to see what was going to happen. They spent hours being bitten by mosquitoes and gnats and all other manner of tropical insects, all in the heat of equatorial South America. And of course, nothing happened. I mean, there were no Coast Guard ships, nothing was going to happen. But Swan, Charles Swan and his men, advised slipping away. It was clearly a dangerous situation they were in, with a heavily armed garrison on one side and the Coast Guard on the other, but Swan and his men were mocked for cowardice and shamed by the others into moving on. When night fell, they did so. They slipped upstream towards Guayaquil. They moved in stealth, a band of notorious pirates, the most feared men in the world. And then a gunshot went off in the distance from Guayaquil, and suddenly the city came alight. They'd been spotted. Wait, no. There was music? It was some sort of festival. The pirates were perplexed, but they thought it best to once again wait until dawn, when everyone would finally be asleep after their festival. In the hour just before dawn, while a few of the pirates dozed, one of the Indian captives slipped away. He was certainly going to run to town and warn everybody, so the pirates searched frantically, but without fruit. He was gone. Guayaquil would be warned, and their attack would be for naught. Dampier writes, quote, Not a man after that had the heart to speak of going farther. Here we stayed till day and then rode out into the middle of the river where we had a fair view of the town, which, as I said before, makes a very pleasant prospect. We lay still about half an hour, being a mile or something better from the town. They did not fire one gun at us, nor we at them. Thus our design on Guayaquil failed. End quote. It would come out later that one of Davis's men, who was set to guard the Indians, cut the rope holding him, and let one of the Indians escape. He was of the opinion that the attack on Guayaquil was a bad idea and made a choice to sabotage it. Still, though, when they returned to Guayaquil Bay, not all was lost. They had three ships there waiting for them, filled with able-bodied slaves and with their previous hauls off into the ocean as well. That's when the idea that had been growing in Dampier's mind fully formed. They had hundreds of well-armed men. They had their ships carrying big guns. They had lumber from their first prize. And they had food. They had lots of food. They had goats from Juan Fernandez and flour and marmalade from those three ships. They had turtles from the Galapagos and beef from Mexico and coconuts from Isla Plata and a haul of wine only recently taken. And then, 
They had slaves, what Dampier called 1,000 lusty young men and women. It was... Well, if what Captain Davis and Captain Swan had told Dampier was true, then the pirates had decimated and scattered the garrison at Santa Maria. Santa Maria was... Well, it was a defensible fort, and it guarded the richest gold mines in Central America. Now, that fort was only designed to defend against the Kuna people nearby. They didn't expect any pirates to come, as Davis and Swan had. However, according to Dampier, quote, There was never a greater opportunity put into the hands of men to enrich themselves than we had to have gone with these Negroes and settled ourselves on Santa Maria, on the Isthmus of Darien, and employed them in getting gold out of the mines there which might have been done with ease, for Captain Harris had routed the Spaniards away from the town and gold mines of Santa Maria, so that they had never attempted to settle there again since. Add to this that the Indian neighborhood, who were mortal enemies of the Spaniards and had been flushed by their successes against them through the assistance of the privateers for several years, were our fast friends and ready to receive and assist us. We had, as I have said, 1,000 Negroes to work for us. We had 200 ton of flour that lay at the Galapagos. There was the river of Santa Maria, where we could careen and fit our ships, and might fortify the mouth so that if all the strength of the Spaniards have in Peru had come against us, we could have kept them out. If they lay with guard ships of strength to keep us in, yet we had a great country to live in, and a great nation of Indians that were our friends, Besides, which was the principal thing, we had the North Seas to befriend us, from whence we could export ourselves or effects or import goods or men to our assistance. For in a short time, we should have had assistance from all parts of the West Indies. Many thousands of privateers from Jamaica and the French islands especially would have flocked over to us. And long before this time, we might have been masters not only of those mines, the richest gold mines ever yet found in America, but of all the coast as high as Quinto, and much more than I say might then probably have been done. End quote. It was, in short, the perfect place for a pirate haven, a defensible fort, with a river running nearby to supply them and an ocean not too far off. It was surrounded by enemies to the south, but it was also nearby allies. The Kuna people were friends with the pirates, and then beyond them, even more pirates. All of the brethren of the coast who were left in the West Indies would have come there to make this place their home. It would have been a base from which they could sortie out and raid Panama and Truxillo and even Lima, all of the richest gold and silver mines in Central and South America would be theirs for the taking, and they would even have the richest in all of the New World to themselves. This could have been the capital of a pirate republic, a city like Port Royal had once briefly been, like Tortuga had been before that, like Madagascar and Nassau would be in the future. This could have been the place for piracy in the New World. Of course, it was not to be. Next time, we're going to discuss the roads that Peter Harris and Charles Swan took that brought them to Guayaquil, and then we'll discuss what happened to the pirate haven at Santa Maria that almost came to be. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has become a patron on Patreon or left us a donation at the website, or if you've given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, or just spread the word and let people know about the Pirate History Podcast. I couldn't do this without all of you. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, or at our Gmail account, thepiratehistorypodcast at gmail.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
let him live on in legend tonight.